We are in the book of Isaiah. We will be, Lord willing, for some time yet. And so turn to chapter 29. Had a good time this afternoon, an afternoon class. And praise the Lord, unless something changes, this is going to be a Wednesday night. It does not snow. Hallelujah. Rain possible, but they're not calling for snow, and so hallelujah. As we discussed this afternoon, as a way of introduction, Isaiah has been an amazing, amazing revelation. Imagine what it was like for Isaiah living in the midst of wickedness in his people. The people of God in Isaiah's time were, were drunks. They were immoral. They were idolaters. They had no fervent heart for God, and yet they continued to keep up the outward appearances of their religion. They kept going to the, uh, the temple. They did the feasts, the sacrifices, all of the things they were supposed to do on the outside. They did while at the same time their hearts were not toward God at all. Because of their wickedness, because specifically of their idolatry, God finally drew a line and said he's going to judge them. And the book of Isaiah is a look toward that judgment. And the immediate judgment was going to be from Assyria. And as you well know, Assyria was going to come and attack the northern kingdom first. And uh, still God in his mercy giving Judah a chance to get right with him. Even during the time of Isaiah's attacks, still Judah could have called upon the Lord and could fall on their face and repented. But they did not. They continued to fall in the follow in the idolatrous ways of the northern kingdom. And so uh, God told Isaiah that he was going to bring destruction to Judah as well. But what's been amazing in our journey in Isaiah is we see these, these, these gruesome pictures of judgment. And about the time you can't breathe any longer because it's so bleak, God pulls back the curtain and shows what it's going to be like in the millennium. And from the millennial vantage, he has his people all gathered together looking back and praising God for what they came through. Thank you, God. We made it. Thank you, God, for your provision. Thank you. It's a beautiful time. And then he takes them back with a whiplash motion and shows them the oncoming Assyrians once again. And so tonight we begin chapter 29 with a look toward the judgment once again. I'm going to read just the first verse and then pray and then we'll get into the study. Let's, let me read verse number 1 of chapter 29. Woe to Ariel, to Ariel, the city where David dwelt. Add ye year to year, let them kill sacrifices. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we are so at your mercy. I'm sure the people to whom Isaiah gave this prophecy understood it so much better than we do. There's so much, so much cultural innuendo here, Lord. But we need your mind, your insights. Help us to understand what you would have for us. Help us to understand your heart. Lord, help us not to get carried away thinking that you are nothing but a vengeful God. Because I thank you for your mercy. And I thank you for the, the numerous times you offered to both Israel and to Judah. 
your merciful out, outstretched hand, but they rejected it. Lord, help us to gain truth from these passages for our lives as we seek to serve you, for we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're taking notes, Roman number one is God's judgment upon his people, letter A, a warning to Jerusalem. I read the verse, I'll read it again. Woe to Ariel, to Ariel, the city where David dwelt. Add ye year to year, let them kill sacrifices. Well, it doesn't take a genius to figure out where we're talking about, the city where David dwelt, but Ariel is literally translated Lion of God. This particular woe, according to the context, I believe is Jerusalem, the city where David dwelt. The thought is for them to go ahead and make their annual journey to Jerusalem to offer their sacrifices and keep the yearly feasts. Now, he's going he's to build upon this truth. Letter B, God was about to judge Jerusalem. So, so according to the, the judgment, Israel's already been judged. Look at the future. Israel's already been judged, but the judgment is coming toward Jerusalem. Yet I will distress, verse 2, Ariel, and there shall be heaviness and sorrow, and it shall be unto me as Ariel. So in spite of their continued sacrifices, God was about to bring judgment down upon them. Even though they were going to the altar, even though they were taking the animals and sacrificing them, even though they were continuing their feasts, God was going to bring judgment because he wasn't interested in the outward, he was interested in the inward, that which was on the inside. He wanted the outward to be an expression of what was in the inward. So if all they had was the outward, it was empty. It was an abomination because it was a lie. One commentator wrote, And it shall be unto me as Ariel. This phrase shows that Isaiah 29.1, Jerusalem is called Ariel. But he says it's because it contained the great altar and was the place of sacrifice. So he takes a jump here. It's known as the city or the lion of God. And here he takes a jump. The word Ariel here is to be understood in the sense of the hearth of the great altar. And the meaning is, I will indeed make Jerusalem like the great altar, or I will make it the burning place of wrath, where my enemies shall be consumed as if they were on the altar of burnt sacrifice. Thus, in Isaiah 30 and verse 9, it is said of Yahweh that, his fire is in Zion, and his furnace in Jerusalem. Letter C. The enemy would lay siege against Jerusalem. The enemy would lay siege against Jerusalem. Verse 3. And I will camp against thee round about, and will lay siege against thee with a mount, and I will raise forts against thee. So number one erecting higher ground for warfare. I found it interesting that they were going to lay, um, uh, lay siege with a mount. We discussed this this afternoon just a little bit, but in warfare, um, we're talking about building a mount or an enemy coming to a city and laying siege to that city, building a mount against that city. Well, a mount obviously dis the, uh, denotes something of a higher nature. A mount, something high. There are very many different kinds of mounts. Sometimes those mounts were built of scaffolding to give them a higher elevation. Sometimes they were built of, of earth 
they would build earthen mounts to give them a higher vantage. Why? Because there's walls around the city. And to give them a better vantage point, they would give a mound. Now they can get up on top of the mound, have a better vantage to shoot, plus hide behind the mound here. So we're talking about warfare, the city being surrounded by the enemy, the city of Jerusalem. So number one, erecting higher ground for warfare. Number two, likely, however, this prophecy does not include Assyria. And I found this interesting. Laying siege against Jerusalem. I think there's a, a, a twofold thought here. This invasion does not seem to be that from Assyria because God prevented Assyria from laying siege against the city. Now, I see this two ways. Assyria was not allowed to penetrate the city. It was not allowed to go through the gates of the city. Why? Well, if you remember, Assyria's army came in a massive number and set up camp right outside the, the gates. So now, right outside the walls of Jerusalem, surrounding the city, is this massive army of Assyria. Jerusalem goes to sleep. And there are some lepers in the town. And they've been starving to death because Assyria has been preventing any food supplies from coming in. So inside the city, they're starving. These lepers say, hey, listen, we're dead men anyway. If we stay inside the city, we're dead. If we go to the enemy, we're dead. We might as well go out and see if we can get some food off the enemy. What do they do? They open the gates, they sneak out, shut the door behind them, and they go and they find all of the enemy. 185,000 of them are all dead. They're all dead. And these lepers go and they start having this amazing party. They're eating all the food, and then they realize, hey, we need to go share this. And so they go tell everybody, well, you won't believe it. They're all dead out there. It's incredible. So Assyria came to and, and, and set up camp around them, but they did not penetrate the city because of God's protection. Um, Isaiah 37, 33, Therefore, thus saith the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into this city, nor shoot an arrow there, nor come before it with shields, nor cast a bank against it. Interested. So even though they were right there, ready to attack, God prevented it and actually killed them all. Letter D. Jerusalem would be humbled before God. Now listen carefully to the wording here and try to get a mental picture of what you see. Verse 4. And thou shalt be brought down and shalt speak out of the ground, and thy speech shall be low out of the dust, and thy voice shall be as one that hath a familiar spirit out of the ground, and thy speech shall whisper out of the dust. So talking the ground, in the dust, the ground, in the dust. To me it sounds like somebody who's laying on the ground and they're talking, but they're talking with their face down. And they're kicking up dust as they're speaking. Well, what, kind of a, what kind of a position would account for that? Someone, someone prone on the ground, suggesting humbled, being humbled. Jerusalem's pride and arrogance will be humbled. They'll be lying on the ground in their shame, barely able to speak. Mumbling almost inaudibly in the dirt is the picture. Then it talks about having a familiar spirit out of the ground. 
They'll be likened to the wizards who pretend to communicate with the dead, conjuring up ghastly voices imitating, imitating ghosts. In other words, they would have these uh, seance-type things, and they would pretend like they're conjuring up the, the ghosts of these dead people. And those of the seance would make up these voices, these ghouly voices. Well, what the, what the picture is, these people are being humbled in the ground, barely able to mumble, and they're just moaning and groaning like these voices of the seances they had gone to. And Isaiah 8 and verse 19, And when they shall say unto you, Seek unto them that have familiar spirits, and unto wizards that peep and that mutter, should not a people seek unto their God for the living to the dead? These wizards would make funny sounds, guttural sounds sometimes, mimicking dead people coming to life. Letter E, the enemy would come in massive numbers. Verse 5, moreover, the multitude of thy strangers shall be like small dust. See the comparison? The number of the strangers will be like the dust. And the multitude, the terrible ones, shall be as chaff that passeth away. Yea, it shall be an instant, suddenly. So as the dust of the earth, so numerous will be the invaders that will march against Jerusalem at God's stirring. As the chaff that is separated from the wheat and allowed to blow away, so will be the magnitude of the terrible ones or the tyrannical oppressors. And their invasion will come suddenly or without warning. I asked them this afternoon, is what, what is it that makes us so fearful of snakes? Well, somebody immediately said, well, they slither. Yeah, the movement of the snake is disconcerting. But to me, one of the most dreadful things about snakes is the surprise. Surprise. So you're walking along, ah, there's, a, there's a snake. Ah. One of the dreadful things that God is describing here of the enemy is the shock, the surprise. There's a massive army there against us. The fear that was penetrated them. Letter F. God's judgment would come as torrential storms. Verse 6. Thou shalt be visited of the Lord of hosts with thunder and with earthquake and a great voice, with storm and tempest and the flame of devouring fire. Remember, we're talking about judgment. God's judgment. When God says, I'm going to bring judgment, what are the metaphors he likes to use? Well, lightning and thunder and hailstorms. Isaiah is likely describing the coming judgment metaphorically. Throughout the scriptures, God often brings judgment in the form of these natural forces. Of course, they would eventually be burned with the flame of fire from the Babylonians and then much later from the Romans. Isaiah 28:2, Behold, the Lord hath a mighty and strong one, which as a tempest of hail and a destroying storm, as a flood of many waters overflowing, shall cast down to the earth with the hand. So God has a mighty and strong one, and he describes it like a violent storm. What is this mighty and strong one? It's an army. He's got an army marching against Jerusalem, and he describes them like a massive storm. Letter G. Jerusalem's attackers would be as a dream. Verse 7, And the multitude of all the nations that fight against Ariel, even all that fight against her and her munition, 
and that distress her shall be as a dream of a night vision. This verse and the next one present an illustration of a person going into a deep sleep and dreaming. That dream presents several possible problems for the dreamer. In this case, the dreamers are those nations that fight against Jerusalem and her munition, her munition, or her fortress. Jerusalem was surrounded by this massive wall and protected by it. There were many nations that rose up against the city of David. Jerusalem, through the centuries, we've talked about these, were about to experience Assyria's invasion. Assyria was followed by Babylon. Babylon was followed by Rome. Rome, much later, by the German Nazis. And one day, they'll be surrounded by the nations of the world during the tribulation. Each would experience some of the results described in the next verse. Letter H. Jerusalem's attackers would be disappointed in the spoils. Verse 8. It shall even be as when an hungry man dreameth. And behold, he eateth, but he awaketh, and his soul is empty. Or as when a thirsty man dreameth, and behold, he drinketh, but he waketh, and behold, he is faint, and his soul hath appetite. So shall the multitude of all the nations be that fight against Mount Zion. I think this is a funny illustration. The illustration is this. A man goes to bed, and he's just starved. Now, maybe the guy's fasting. Maybe he has no food, but he goes to bed, and he's got this massive appetite, and he finally, finally drifts off to sleep, and he dreams, and he dreams of eating this luscious feast, and he's got this massive hamburger, and all, all his, the, the juice is coming down his cheeks, and he's salivating, and so good, and then, then he wakes up and realizes, oh, man, I'm still hungry, or the same man is thirsty. He's just dying of thirst. For some reason, he has no water. We're not told why. This is just a dream. He has no water. Perhaps he's out in the desert, doesn't want to go down to the stream to get water. Whatever. He goes to sleep. Oh, he goes to this oasis in his sleep. And he jumps in this beautiful, still water. And he, he just drinks all that he can. He's drinking all this wonderful water. And then he wakes up and he realizes, I'm still thirsty. That's why he describes the enemy coming to Jerusalem with these great hopes of taking all this spoil away. All these enemies coming against Jerusalem, and they're going to attack it. Why? Because they want everything that's there, but they're going to walk away disappointed. That's how it describes it. In 2 Chronicles 32, 21, the Lord sent an angel, which cut off all the mighty men of valor and the leaders and the captains in the camp of the king of Assyria. So, this is talking about the time where that army, Assyria, came and set up around Jerusalem during the night. God killed 185,000 of them. They're all dead corpses out there. Okay. So, the leaders, captains of the camp of king of Assyria. So, he, the leader of Assyria, returned with shame of face to his own land. And when he was come into the house of his God... They that came forth of his own bowels slew him there with the sword. His sons killed him. So when the leader of Assyria, is that Shalmaneser? I think it was. So Sisera, when he led the troops and woke up in the morning, they're all dead. He's got to go back and tell his leadership. 
He goes back and tells what's going on. He goes back to reside in the palace and his sons kill him. Jerusalem's attackers would be disappointed in their spoils. Roman numeral two, the condition of God's people. I began this evening by describing it. What kind of a condition were the people of God at the time of Isaiah's writing? They were awful. They were wicked. They were immoral. They, were, they had the title of God's people, but they served the devil. Letter A, Isaiah's frustration with his people. Verse 9, stay yourselves and wonder. Cry ye out and cry. They are drunken, but not with wine. They stagger, but not with strong drink. Number one, consider your condition. Isaiah, possibly out of frustration with the moral degradation of his people, like was Moses, tells them to stay or pause and consider their condition. Think seriously about your spiritual condition and take the prophecy of God's impending judgment in earnest. Take this seriously. They were mocking him. They didn't believe it. Number two, notice the effects of your sinful behavior. This phrase, cry ye out and cry, seems to suggest indulging in carnal pleasures and then crying because of the bad effects of those pleasures, like a hangover from a drunken evening of partying. That little phrase, cry ye out, is different than the cry. And the cry ye out, as you look it up, has something to do with something immoral. So there's, there's this immoral activity, and they're crying out in this immoral activity. And when, when the bad effects from their behavior hits them, then they cry in agony. That's what's being described here. Notice the effects of your sinful behavior. Number three, recognize how out of control you are. They're drunken but not with wine, I think means they are under the stupefying effects of more than just alcohol. Yes, they were drunkards, but they were also drunk with their immoral pleasures. They were out of control. Instead of being steady and upright in their character, they were shady and shifty, staggering from one poor decision to another. In Jeremiah 23, 9, my heart within me is broken because of the prophets. All my bones shake. I'm like a drunken man, he says, and like a man whom wine hath overcome because of the Lord and because of the words of his holiness. He couldn't walk a straight line, Jeremiah, because he was consumed with the condition of God's people, so overwhelmed and brokenhearted. Letter B, God gives them a veil of darkness, and it seems like we've talked about this almost every week. At least for the two, last two or three weeks, God put a veil, spiritual blindness, over the nation of Israel, causing them to not be able to reach out. So nationally now, God has prevented them from reaching out to God. Why? Because of the spiritual blindness that God put upon them. Verse 10, For the Lord hath poured out upon you the spirit of deep sleep, and hath closed your eyes, 
the prophets and your rulers, the seers hath he covered. Number one, God blinded his people. Because of their spiritual insensitivity to God and their obviously shrouded spiritual perception, God placed upon his people a veil, darkening their understanding. They wanted nothing to do with God or his counsel. So God made it so they could not have it. And so perhaps the pushback is that means that God stole from them free will. They were unable, it says right here, they were unable. He put a spirit of delusion or of darkness upon them so they could not see. Spiritual blindness. So they could not call out. See, so, well, God, God made it so they couldn't. So that's taken the free will away from them. Well, let me take you to the illustration of Pharaoh, where God hardened the heart of Pharaoh. And I found this interesting because God, we all know this, that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And that's very true. It sounds like, well, God intervened and made it so Pharaoh could not, and that's only true after you realize that three times previous to the time that God hardened Pharaoh's heart, Pharaoh hardened his own heart, time after time after time. Let my people go, no, he hardened his heart. Let my people go, no, he hardened his own heart. Let my people go, no, he has a pattern of hardening his heart. God says, if that's the way you're going to be, I'll make it so that no matter what judgment comes your way, I'll make it impossible for you to change. Simply solidifying the pattern he had already established. And that's what we see here. But don't forget, this is a nationalist blindness. This is a, 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 a curse that he's put upon the nation of Israel. And we see throughout the scripture numbers of times where individuals could always call out to God. Individually, a person could respond to God. We're going to see shortly that this veil continued into the New Testament. Paul talks about the veil continuing in his day. And yet we know that Paul himself was able to pierce that veil and had great spiritual insight because individually a person could respond. All right, let's go on. Number two, this was a national judgment, and we just talked about that. Isaiah 6, 9, and he said, Go and tell this people, Hear ye indeed, but understand not. And see ye indeed, but perceive not. Make the heart of this people fat, and make their ears heavy, and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and convert and be healed. I'm going to make it so they can't change nationally. I'm going to make it so they can't turn to me. Why? Because they repeatedly, 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 over and over again, have turned against me and refused me. Um, Romans 11.8, New Testament. According as it is written, God hath given them the spirit of slumber. There's that spiritual blindness. Eyes that they should not see and ears that they should not hear. Paul says, unto this day, even in Paul's day. Letter C. Israel could no longer discern God's will. Verse 11. And the vision of all is become unto you as the words of a book that is sealed, which men deliver to one that is learned. Say, read this, I pray thee. And he saith, I cannot, for it's sealed. <laughs> There's a book, and it's got a seal around it. Here, here uh, you're, you're a learned man. Read this for me. Well, well, I can't read it because it's sealed. Well, it doesn't say that all he has to do is break the seal, but he can't read it because it's sealed. Israel's condition was as a result of their continued rebellion against God. 
They'd ignored God and His Word, leading to their ignorance of His will and ways. God had simply chosen to give them what they wanted by putting them over spiritual blindness. They were like a man going to read a book, only to find it is still covered in a seal and not permitted to break the seal. Matthew 11.25, At that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent, and hast revealed them unto babes, which is exactly why Jesus spoke in parables. For those that have ears to hear, let them hear. In parables. Letter D. Israel had become spiritually illiterate. Verse 12. And the book is delivered to him that is not learned, saying, Read this, I pray thee. And he said, I am not learned. Well, a second illustration is of a man who can't read. He's given a book and responds, I can't read. I'm not learned. Israel could no longer read spiritual truth. They had become blind to anything of God. Jeremiah 5.4, Therefore I said, Surely these are poor, they are foolish, for they know not the way of the Lord, nor the judgment of their God. Letter E. Israel served God outwardly, but not with their hearts. Verse 13, Wherefore the Lord said, For as much as this people draw near me with their mouth, and with their lips do honor me, but have removed their heart far from me, and their fear toward me is taught by the precept of men. Number one, Israel had kept up an outward form of religion. We talked about that. They did all the feasts. They did the sacrifices outwardly. But number two, they did just enough to get by. Just enough to get by. In their minds, doing just enough would appease God. To, so, to, so they would indulge themselves in their idolatry and other sinful pleasures. The rabbis continued to teach the fear of the Lord, but they had no respect for God. Jesus said in Matthew 15, 8 and 9, This people draweth nigh unto me with their mouth, and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain they do worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. Roman number three, God will do an astonishing work that will put an end to Judaism. And I found this an interesting prophecy. Verse 14, God says, Therefore, behold, I will proceed to do a marvelous work among this people, even a marvelous work and a wonder, for the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the understanding of their prudent men shall be hid. God told his people he'd do a marvelous work. This word marvelous can mean astonishing work, an astonishing work. There will be a day in which the work of God will cause the wisdom of the wise men, the rabbis, the scribes, to perish, along with that of the understanding of the prudent man. This may be suggesting a time where the wisdom of the rabbis Judaism would cease. This has not yet been fully accomplished, but it will when Jesus Christ returns. 
Habakkuk 1.5, Behold ye among the heathen, and regard, and wonder marvelously, for I will work a work in your days, which ye will not believe, though it be told you. Acts 13.41, Behold ye despisers, and wonder, and perish, for I'll work a work in your days, a work which ye shall in no wise believe, though a man declare it unto you. An astonishing work. Letter A, God warned of trying... Uh, God warned... Oh, God warned of trying to hide from him. God warned of trying to hide from him. Verse 15, Woe unto them that seek deep to hide their counsel from the Lord, and their works are in the dark, and they say, Who seeth us, and who knoweth us? The Babylonian captivity had some very dark days, some very dark, spiritually dark days. God's people invented new ways to serve their carnal desires. They created secret societies among God's people and found secret locations to invent new doctrines contrary to God's. They somehow convinced themselves that in their secluded caves and hideaways, they were hidden from God. The works of their imaginations were abominations to God. We find this in Ezekiel chapter 8, verse 12. Then said he unto me, Son of man, hast thou seen what the ancients of the house of Israel do in the dark? Every man in the chambers of his imagery? For they say, The Lord seeth us not. The Lord hath forsaken the earth. They felt like God had abandoned them, so they went down to the recesses of the earth, into caves where it was all dark, and they had these incantations and made up these new, new doctrines and and became blood brothers and all these things, these secret societies. They didn't realize that God saw it and God prophesied against them because of it. Isaiah 45, 9, I'm sorry, uh, Ezekiel 8, 12. I read, letter B, Israel had changed roles with God. Verse 16, surely your turning of things upside down shall be esteemed as the potter's clay. For shall the work say of him that it made it? He made me not? Or shall the thing framed say of him that framed it, He hath no understanding? So it's a potter and he's working with clay. He's making this vase. He says, Does the vase all of a sudden holler out and said, You don't know what you're doing? Well, of course not. Of course not. But that's how Israel was treating God. Israel was acting like they could tell God what to do. They had reversed their relationship with God. They had taken the position of the potter, determining for themselves the path of their lives, making God the clay. So they could determine what they wanted. God, you do what we say, is how Israel was now treating God. Isaiah 45, 9, Woe unto him that striveth with his maker. Let the potsherd, or the pottery, Strive with the potsherds of the earth. Shall the clay say to him that fashioneth, What makest thou, or thy work? He hath no hands. Roman number four, life in the millennium. Life in the millennium. Letter A, there will come a great reversal. Verse 17, Is it not yet a very little while, and Lebanon shall be turned into a fruitful field, and the fruitful field shall be esteemed as a forest? Number one, a look 
after the day of the Lord. How many times have we talked about the day of the Lord? It's the day the Lord intervenes once again in the affairs of mankind. I believe it begins with the tribulation, with Jesus coming back and the rapture, but setting up for the tribulation, and then going into the millennium. The view that looks now to a future day of the Lord, where a time when everything will be changed under the Lord's rule and control. Number two, Lebanon's forest changed. Lebanon, the time, was a thick forest. In that day, it shall be turned into a fruitful field, while that which is currently a fruitful field will become an overgrown forest. In other words, in that day, everything is going to be turned upside down. Things going to change. Number three, Israel's change. Israel at that time was spiritually an overgrown forest, steeped in idolatry and sinful practices. But during the day of the Lord, Israel will be completely changed, submissive to and serving the Lord with all their hearts. Can you begin to imagine? Can you begin to imagine Israel as a nation completely subservient to God, believing in the Messiah, serving Him with their whole heart? Number four, another interpretation. Another interpretation of this passage looks to the great harvest of Gentile believers as Paul spread the gospel. The majority of Jewish believers in the church was quickly swallowed up by the massive response of Gentiles. The Jewish church became a, a deserted forest. Isaiah 54, 1, Sing, O barren, thou that didst not bear, break forth into singing and cry aloud, thou that didst not travail with child, for more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married wife, saith the Lord. Letter B. The blind and deaf will be healed. Verse 18, And in that day shall the deaf hear the words of the book, and the eyes of the blind shall see out of the obscurity and out of darkness. So number one, there will be healings in that day. Healings. The world saw a glimpse of the deaf hearing and the blind seeing under the compassionate earthly ministry of the Lord Jesus. The millennium will ultimately fulfill this prophecy. Matthew 15, 31, insomuch the multitude wondered when they saw the dumb to speak and the maimed to be whole and the lame to walk and the blind to see and they glorified the God of Israel. Number two, spiritual healings in that day. This can be interpreted both physically and spiritually as men's spiritual eyes will be opened when Jesus returns as well. Isaiah 35, 5, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Number three, Blessed will be the meek and the poor. Verse 19, The meek also shall increase their joy in the Lord, and the poor among men shall rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. The word meek here suggests those oppressed. The thought is they'll become happy in the Lord in that day. The needy, will rejoice over the care they'll receive in the Lord. As Jesus takes the reins of leadership, His rule will be that of compassion for the hurting. Matthew 5, 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Number four, Israel's enemies will be cut off. Verse 20, For the terrible one is brought to naught, and the scorner is consumed, and all that watch for iniquity are cut off. 
the enemies of Israel, along with the scornful godless who mock Christ and religion, will join those who constantly look for ways to sin by being cut off. The day of the Lord will put an end to those not in lockstep with our Lord. God's in control. In the millennium, the Lord Jesus rules and reigns, and you're with Him, or you're dead. You're going to be with Him at that time. It may be outward compliance, but you will be with Him at that time. Matthew 2.1, Woe to them that devise iniquity and work evil upon their beds. When the morning is light, they practice it, because it is in the power of their hand. Number five, enemies of righteousness will be cut off. Verse 21, that make a man an offender for a word, and lay a snare for him that reproveth in the gate, and turn aside the just for a thing of naught. Now, I may be missing the mark here, but just think about this concept. Becoming an offender for a word. I think of today's hypersensitivity to people being offended. Offended at every little thing. You say one little word, and all of a sudden you're the off-scouring of the world. A hypersensitivity or becoming an offender for a word. Trying to trip people up. Coming to the gate or place of public business. Basically what they've done is they've taken words and made them weapons. Amos 5.12, For I know your manifold transgressions and your mighty sins. They afflict the just. They take a bribe and they turn aside the poor in the gate from their right. So lastly, those who pay heed to false statements called a thing of not here when hearing the appeal of a just cause. Enemies of righteousness will be cut off. And number six, Israel would no longer hang their heads in shame. Verse 22, Therefore, thus saith the Lord, who redeemed Abraham, concerning the house of Jacob, Jacob shall now not now be ashamed, neither shall his face now wax pale. So in that day, the reproach that had shamed Israel for so long, that of the wickedness of their forefathers, would be wiped away. Israel had been redeemed out of Ur as God had led Abraham from his homeland to a land of God's choosing. No longer would they hang their heads in shame, leaving their faces pale over the shame and disappointment of their past. They would be forgiven and redeemed by the Lamb of God. In the millennium, that reproach that had been carried for centuries of a people who had stood at the very door of the promised land, but because of no faith in God, had refused to go in the day of provocation. And God had judged them by killing them over the next 40 years in the wilderness. As they went into the promised land many years later, we see them turning their hearts wicked once again, and instead of staying away from the heathen, they, they welcomed the gods of the heathens and worshipped them. So in the day of the millennium, their reproach will be wiped away. Number seven. Israel will glorify God for the opportunity of their children. Verse 23, But when he seeth his children, the work of mine hands in the midst of him, they shall sanctify my name, and sanctify the Holy One of Jacob, and shall fear the God of Israel. The thought here seems to look to Israel in that day, looking and glorifying God for their children. Think about that. 
Israel's children in that day. So the moms and dads have come into the millennium. They're saved because only saved people enter the millennium. These are saved Jews remembering what it was like to come through the horribleness of the tribulation. They must have come to know Christ during the tribulation. Now they're standing there realizing the joy of the mercy of the Messiah, allowing them to be there, and realizing the incredible benefit their children have now of growing up under the rule of the Messiah. So I think that's what's being talked about here. They'll glorify God for the opportunity of their children. When he seeth his children, the work of my hands, in the midst of him, they shall sanctify my name, and sanctify the Holy One of Jacob, and shall fear the God of Israel. And number eight, Israel will come to a full understanding of the truth. Verse 24, they also that erred in spirit shall come to understanding, and they that murmured shall learn doctrine. God's people had a long history of a rebellious spirit and murmuring attitude. On many occasions, they felt the wrath of God for such behavior, revealing the cold state of their hearts. In that day, their rebellious spirit will come to complete submission to Christ as they come to fully understand that Jesus is the true Messiah. The murmuring that had plagued God's people will give way to the truth of Jesus fulfilling all the prophecies of the Word of God. Isaiah 28, 7, But they also have erred through wine, and through strong drink are out of the way. The priest, the prophet, have erred through strong drink. They are swallowed up of wine. They are out of the way through strong drink. They err in vision. They stumble in judgment. In the New Testament, Romans 11, 11. I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? God forbid, but rather through their fall, salvation has come unto the Gentiles for to provoke them to jealousy. <laughs> well, God is glorified regardless. Chapter 29. Thank you, Lord. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, thank you for your love and thank you for helping us through this chapter. Lord, thank you for being a merciful God. When you do bring judgment, it's awesome. It's fearsome. And Lord, we, we shudder even thinking about it. But Lord, then very quickly remind us that you're merciful. And I thank you, Lord, for giving your people, your people who were so steeped in wickedness, a chance to get right with you by showing them what it could be in the millennium. Lord, thank you today for your mercy. May we serve you today with all of our hearts. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.